the VPs making the choices about where to put money, they don't think about it. They, they kind of take it for granted. And this is a huge problem in the corporate world with open source. You know, it's, it's, a, it's kind of like a, a fog of war. They don't see far enough down the software supply chain of what's powering everything. This is Contributor, a podcast telling the stories behind the best open source projects and the communities that make them. I'm Eric Anderson. Today we're on air with Lucio Franco, who is part of the team over at Terso. We talked to Globber maybe a few episodes back, and we're going to talk about Rust and some emerging standards, and in particular, a project called Tonic, uh, part of the Tokyo broader family. Lucio, tell us what Tonic is real quick. We'll see if we can kind of encapsulate that in a kind of elevator pitch, and then we'll sure. talk about the whole story. So Tonic is uh, a gRPC library at the base. You know, it's, it provides your client server, your basic code gen. The library is pretty simple. It just allows you to talk gRPC with any other language because gRPC is a multi-language protocol, so it's pretty efficient. Tonic itself like some of its higher level goals have always been around being super ergonomic and efficient. So if you don't have any history around async Rust in the past, it's quite challenging to work with. It's improved a lot over the last, you know, five years, but when it first started, it was, it was quite hard to work with. So Tonic is essentially like, I want to write a networking server, a client server and, or talk to a server or client, but I want to do it really easily. I want to get started and not have to worry about the hard things. So that's essentially Tonic's goal of a project is to enable those types of users that are somewhat new to the async Rust world. And I don't know the right order to do this, Lucio, you know, your background or Rust's background, or maybe you know of a way to kind of intertwine them. But in researching our conversation, I didn't realize that there was a lot of history around async with Rust and that there's not a standard way of doing this. And so the community has kind of solved this in a few ways. Tokyo, which Tonic is a part of, is, is kind of an umbrella brand for a set of tools that all are going to work interop well together. Right. Yeah. So we can, we can back up a little bit. Like Rust 1.0 in August 2015, July 20, something like that. So it's a very young language. And in effort to standardize or 1.0 the language to make it available to people, there was a choice to like reduce the size of the standard library, right? The less surface area that you have to ship the easier it is to ship, right? So that's the idea. So let's make package managers really easy compared to something like C++, you know, where getting dependencies inside is very difficult. Russ is like, let's make that very easy and then let users kind of innovate on their own and not have to deal with this whole RFC process to get stuff into the standard library that is one, extremely slow and brain drain, it's exhausting. So Rust at the core has always started with a small standard library. You know, like for example, a language like Go has a lot of stuff shipped with it. It has an HTTP implementation. It has a green threading implementations that you can just take the standard library and just run with it and actually build some pretty good stuff out of the box. Rust did not take that approach. Rust kind of let you push that onto users. Tokyo itself, there's kind of two things here going on in the early stages of async Rust or the story of asynchronous networking in Rust. There's the design of futures, which would be, you know, the idea of how do we execute anything asynchronously, which was being driven by some compiler folks or library folks in Rust. And then on the side, there was like, okay, how do we leverage these like interfaces and build something off of it that, you know, is actually async. And this is kind of where Tokyo came into play around 2016-ish, I think, uh, was when they started developing Tokyo a little bit and it started off as a third-party library. There's no, I mean, if it works, 
why does it need to be a part of the standard library? Because putting stuff into the standard library is is a lot of work. Like, like there's a lot of like bureaucracy involved with it, which I completely agree we should have. Because I mean, stuff that goes in the standard library is stamped and shipped to everyone in the world. So being able to do stuff outside of that kind of enabled Tokyo to kind of innovate and push the boundaries of what was possible. And I think we're seeing a lot of the fruition of those effects in the modern day. Like, you know, Tokyo is extremely popular now. It's being used at essentially almost every major tech company for something. And it's growing popular in the ecosystem as being kind of a leader in this space. Maybe I interrupt you here because I think you've kind of given us some early history into Rust and Tokyo. And now what's your story? Because at some point you intercept with Tokyo. Yeah, so actually my origin story uh, with Rust actually started in college. Before I got into networking and all of this distributed system stuff, I was like, I want to write game engines. And I failed so many times trying to get OpenGL linked into my uh, C++ project. Like like banging my head against the desk, reading Stack Overflow screenshots of Xcode settings and like having no clue what's going on. And then I stumbled across Go and I didn't like the Go path thing. And then I stumbled across Rust and I was like, wow, I can just cargo add OpenGL and things just work. And I was like, this is amazing. This is clearly the best. So I fell in love with it then and there, uh, Rust as, as a core. Everything just made sense. I read the book and I was like, why aren't other people doing this? You know, this is so awesome. Um, and then obviously I played around a little bit, did my game stuff for a while. And as I was graduating, I was like, I need to do real stuff because I didn't want to work in the game industry. And so I was like, I, know, I love distributed systems and distributed databases. Like, why not get involved? Ironically, now I work at a database company doing distributed database stuff. So if you think about my, my goals back then and where I've landed now is... The path has worked out quite well for me. Yeah, so I started learning Rust. And then, you know, obviously I saw the futures and async networking stuff coming up. And I tried to play around with it for a while and I absolutely failed. It was not the easiest thing. The error messages coming from the compiler were, were quite confusing. Just using it in general, not having a clue what async networking was. I just knew it was a cool thing. And it's high performance. So, you know, if I was wanting to write a database, this is the stuff I want to use. So a couple years went by, I worked in a different language and I started, honestly, I don't know if you guys remember Gitter. It's like a, a chat platform for GitHub. Uh, so like a GitHub project could create like a chat platform. And so, you know, me being curious, I just was poking around the Tokyo stuff and I ended up going on Gitter and, and talking with Carl, who's you know the author of Tokyo. And you no, know, we were talking back and forth a little bit. And that's, that's basically how I got involved in Tokyo was just honestly letting Carl talk to me about stuff. And I had no idea what was going on, but I was curious and wanted to learn. So I got myself involved and, you know, I think I was, instead of working, I was doing some open source stuff here and there, and it wasn't part of my full-time job. That's how I got involved in kind of the open source thing. But Tonic itself, the origin story is actually kind of interesting because I, you know, this continuing on this path of, you know, seeing these projects and I started going to Carl, I was like, hey, like, where can I help? Like, obviously, like, at the time, I didn't really know what ePoll was. Like, I had some idea, but ePoll is the Linux library that, like, essentially Tokyo wraps around, right? And it, it that's, like, the, the core API that powers everything asynchronous. And so I didn't even know the concepts of this. So I, I didn't really know what I was doing, but I wanted to learn. So I asked, I was like, what are, what are some space that I can help out with? And it turned out that there were some experimental projects done with Tower, which is a kind of like a middleware library. And it had been written, but it needed a lot of polish as with everything. At this stage of, of Rust, everything was very new. And so you know, I started taking playing around with that a little bit. And then I saw this project that was called Tower GRPC. And I'd seen that Carl had actually written this as like, he was at the time working at a, a company called Buoyant, writing a, a, a proxy that needed to do some gRPC stuff in Rust. And so he had written code, but like as you are with any startup, when you write code, you're not like writing code to release it to people, you're writing code to like into your product and like, all right, it works, we're done, let's focus on the next like priority, right? Because it's a startup. So this thing was like this half-hacked state, it worked, but it, you know, it was like the definition of unergonomic, not 
Carl's fault, obviously, but at the state of where things were at, it was quite difficult. So I decided, you know, like if I wanted to work in databases and networking, that was the end goal. Why don't I take this project and try to make it better? And roughly this is at the time when async functions were coming around. So like we're going from like handwriting state machines, right? That were really complicated and like extremely error prone, extremely, extremely error prone to writing like really nice generators that did a lot of the heavy lifting. So like we were making this big jump not just the Tokyo people, the Tokyo people actually, this is all compiler stuff. So this is like the people in the compiler working on that singular futures interface, improving how people can write stuff from the compiler perspective. So for us, it was a target of like, hey, we, we have this new feature shipping in Rust that's gonna really change the game, like really, really change the game. Let's ship something along with this. So we were planning you know, some releases of Tokyo and I was like, you know what? Now's the time, now's my window to, to write a library that one can be really ergonomic and easy to use. So like thinking back to me in college and I was trying to play around with some RPC libraries, I fell flat. I had no idea how to do this. How could I improve upon that experience? You know, how could I make this easier for users? You know, not just discovery, but documentation examples. Just how do we reduce the foot guns? How do we make it so you don't kind of dig yourself into a hole that you didn't think was possible and then you couldn't get out of it, right? And so that was kind of like my, my main focus of time. It was like, how can we really change the game here? And so I spent a lot of wakeless nights. No, I slept, but a lot of nights after work coding trying to get this done and shipped. I mean, working on airplanes, actually, I found that airplanes was my best spot to focus on because it doesn't, doesn't, with my ADHD, there was nothing else to do but code, so it was perfect. And, you know, I, I got it shipped basically just in time for async await to kind of ship as well. And so technically, Tonic was the first product, and I say product because it's not, I'm not really selling anything, but it was the first kind of library on the market or in the Rust ecosystem that was taking advantage of this new async await technology, was working and basically production ready, and you know that was kind of the goal is to kind of release this all in, in, at one time and then iterate upon it and learn, take lessons learned and stuff. Looking back at it now, in the last four years, like the original design actually worked quite well and yet to hear people complain about stuff, which is a, either a scary or, or a very positive thing. But you know, there's definitely some hidden things in there that I would love to fix in the future that I always kind of like put off to the end. But overall, quite happy with, you know, the, the progress the library has made at this point. Maybe Lucio, just to kind of dig into a couple things from that experience, is this kind of your vision or is it Carl's vision? The real villain arc for Tonic was I wanted to work in distributed databases. So I was like, you know, what's the best way to get a job working in distributed databases is to write the protocol that they're using. You go to an employer and you say, hey, you're literally using my code. You depend on your entire product on me, hire me. So that was like my vision. That was my motivation. Obviously, like, I think the goal that Carl was working on in general and, and the others in the Tokyo group were really good. And I think we pushed for some similar fronts, but I think that there's a, you know, what I was pushing for that, that ulterior thing for a job, but you know, the goal of making things more ergonomic and easier was really important. And the, actually the third thing I think that was really critical to Tokyo's current success that we really focused on was shipping. A big problem that happens in the open source community. And we see this a lot with Rust. I mean, I'm, most of my exposure has been to Rust, so I can't really speak to a lot of other languages and communities, but Rust, we kind of have this like decision paralysis. And the same thing with like the standard library versus non-standard library discussion. It's like, if you want to put something into the compiler, it gets drilled down on. You're going to have to answer a million questions, people coming left and right, trying to make decisions on, oh, what if we did it this way? We want to support this, what about that? And it that one becomes very exhausting, but it doesn't allow you to ship. That's why things, for example, like the original async await shipped four years ago, but we still don't have interfaces that are async await, right? I mean, I think it's shipping now, but it's quite a time later. 
Um, this is just purely due to the, the politics that happens in open source, right? And Togo kind of took a different approach. You know, Luckily, we were all amicable to each other. So we all liked each other. There was no drama. But it was like, hey, why don't we not spend our time just always discussing and going in circles? Let's get something out there that people can use, that people can build stuff with, right? Like Rust is not going to go anywhere if people are not able to actually build stuff. And it, people from any level. I'm sure someone who's very experienced could take some of the older stuff that was really difficult to work with and build something. But, you know, we have to support people who are mid-level and juniors and we want to grow into that space. Kind of like Go has taken really a strong advantage here of being really easy to work with. So kind of part of our Tokyo's goal was to, to ship an easy-to-use ergonomic library, but ship it, right? And that was the same goal with Tonic. That's why I was like, let's get it out in time for async await. So everyone can let the day async await lands Boom, what are you going to choose? Is your gRPC library, Tonic, right? So that was kind of, we were kind of pushing on all fronts. I think we all had agreed that that was the right way to go. We didn't want to kind of run in circles any longer. And so that's kind of, I think, been a huge advantage of the Tokyo group of us, you know, really not trying to foster drama or any power plays or anything like that. Because, you know, open source tends to have a lot of power vacuums and people trying to take over. Maybe help me understand one aspect of this, and that's that, I don't know if runtime is the right, right word, but this, this kind of fundamental aspect of the programming language that's not included in a standard library, async await, when you write your gRPC, you write to a single approach to async await, even though there may be others. And so Tonic can only work on Tokyo's async await, is that right? So it's a little bit more complicated. So the async await is just like syntactical sugar in the compiler to convert to some internal types, right? It's a, think of it as like a, a transformer. And in reality, it is exactly a transformer. It transforms into a type that implements future. Future is some interface of something that can run asynchronously and pause and resume. Those are all in the standard library. Finally, future made it into the standard library after a few years, but yes, that all made it to the standard library. Tokyo itself just uses the future interface and a couple global variables to hook into your, your thing to notify you that you're, you're ready, whether it be a timer or whether it be your ePull thing saying, hey, your file descriptor is now ready to read from because there's bytes waiting in the TCP buffer. That stuff is tied to Tokyo. So for example, if I use a TCP stream type from Tokyo, it needs to run inside the Tokyo runtime. And this is because the TCP stream type needs to know how to register itself with the API that Tokyo provides. And there's no way around this. Like it's very hard to abstract that or abstract it in an ergonomic way because those APIs are so tightly ingrained with what it's doing and the scheduler that it doesn't really make much sense. So yes, there has been this kind of issue in the Rust async ecosystem where, you know, you can't mix and match runtimes and swap out runtimes and it makes it very challenging. Kind of it, it ruins your programmer mental model that you'd like to have where things are abstracted and I can just change one line and now I'm using a different runtime. In reality, the the argument for that too is the use cases are not very high. Yes, you have an embedded system. Maybe you want a different runtime. Completely agree. Go use an embedded system runtime from the start. Tokyo ne was never intended to work in that space. But spending all this time on abstracting things when, for example, we're using ePoll in Tokyo, but I, at the time that we were talking about all this abstracting runtime stuff, IOU ring was coming around. If you don't know what IOU ring is, it's essentially a new Linux API that allows you to do to dispatch syscalls asynchronously, right, in the kernel. So it's a really efficient way to do it, but it completely changes the model of how you do IO from having to send the data into the kernel or having passing a pointer and be able to read through it. Uh, it makes it much more complicated. So then how can you abstract something that is still being innovated? It's the same question about the standard library, right? Like if we haven't figured out the right abstractions yet for how to do ePoll in Tokyo. How the heck are we going to be able to 
put that into the standard library and convince people that this is going to be the implementation that we want for the next 10, 15, 20 years. Like, it's not possible. And in fact, for Tokyo, we didn't really think about this. We weren't really, we didn't care about the abstraction because we wanted to get something that people could use. We weren't thinking about how could users swap it out in and out. It wasn't a play to be having monopoly whatsoever, not at all. It was, this isn't beneficial to achieving our current goals of getting this in the hands of users so they can build stuff, right? That was primarily our number one goal about users not writing the most perfect system, not about writing the the best thing ever, but about getting something that people can use and build real systems with. Because that's, in reality, it's how you bring a language forward. You can't just stay academic about everything, right? You need to be a little bit more pushy on getting things in people's hands. It's it's like doing a startup without the funding and all the stuff like that, obviously. Well, actually, that's a good segue. We'll, we'll get into kind of funding and economics-related things in a moment. So this worked out for you, your plan of... I'm going to work on the GRPC implementation and then I'll get hired by a database company. Yeah. In fact, actually, I had a friend, he was working at AWS at the time. He's like, hey, by the way, like, I just like searched because AWS, there's a way you can like search every single code base that isn't like security cleared or something. So anyone could see like any implementation of EC2 or anything like that. And he, I guess he just searched Tonic and he found that Lambda was using it. And I was like, okay, that's interesting. This is like two months after I, I, I first released it. So maybe like six months after I was like, hmm, maybe I should start working on this. That following March, I actually reached out to him. I was like, hey, is Lambda still using it? He's like, yeah. He's like, all right, intro me to the manager. And boom, I ended up joining AWS Lambda and helping them build their new Rust service and eventually transitioned into doing a lot more Rust stuff at AWS in general. But yeah, like, it worked like that easily. It, I was impressed. Trojan horse almost. Yeah. Like you write this thing, they have to use it, and then you have to work there so that they can maintain I mean, it. And what manager's going to tell you no? Like I, I, the your yeah. entire networking pro stack is, you know, like I can solve your problems, right? So you're working on Rust at AWS, but not necessarily databases. And then you find your way to Terso? Yeah. So I got caught in the layoffs. I was working on Rust tooling and open source. So I think I was one of the, the first people on the list to get laid off. You know, I wasn't working on any money making things. You know, I was, I was like, the layers from the money making was quite far away. And this is, again, it's probably a good segue into the open source funding thing. But, you know, when you work on open source, you're so far, like from the VPs making the choices about where to put money. You're so far away. They don't think about it. They, they kind of take it for granted. And this is a huge problem in the corporate world with open source. You know, it's, it's a, they don't, it's, it's kind of like a, a fog of war. They don't see far enough down the software supply chain of what's powering everything to the, you know, like the bytes operating on the CPU or whatever. Like they're not really thinking that far. They're just thinking about my customers directly. And so unfortunately I got caught in that crossfire and, and good timing anyways, I was ready to leave. And, you know, I wanted to work on something. And this probably also segues into another talk about the mental health aspect of being an open source maintainer. And I'm again, very happy with my choices and being at Terso now. And actually I'm finally actually working on a database. So that, that's the huge positive here. Before we go to that, what, how does the funding work for Tokyo? So you got this like somewhat of an organization of volunteers building libraries that they all are kind of individually passionate about and it works and, and kind of, yeah, how, how does how does it all work? That's an extremely good question. So for a while, a couple of us were being paid to work on Tokyo. Carl works at AWS still and he has been working there, maintaining Tokyo and working with people inside the company to help them with Tokyo. Sean has also worked at AWS and now is doing his own thing. He's the maintainer of Hyper, which is the HTTP library. So, you know, implants all the nice, crazy, fun stuff around HTTP. But I think most of the other people are not paid full-time to do this. A lot of it's either in our free time or work has given us some time to work on it. When I joined AWS, I spent about, when I joined, when I was on Lambda, I spent about 50% of my time working on, and I'm going to put in quotes, 50% of my time working on Lambda, 50% of my time working on Tonic and open source. 
definitely very hard to juggle. But most people were kind of in this situation where they were doing either in their free time and stuff like that. And, and if you look at some of the projects, it, since 2019, things have stagnated a little bit. And obviously, like as things get popular, they're very hard to manage. For example, Tonic right now, I, I actually, so I personally have, I don't have any funding coming in for Tonic. Terso has given me time to work on it. Obviously, it's hard to juggle startup priorities with open source library that, you know, is not as critical. Obviously, I'm always look, I'm looking out for security bugs or anything that could be causing issues. And I'm going to respond to that in as fast as possible. That's not a problem. But, you know, features and, you know, I've wanted to re-implement certain things. I don't like how it's done. I just haven't had the time to do that. But yeah, there isn't much funding. And in fact, also, we, we have some money that has been given to us through things like Open Collective, but we really haven't found a way to spend that money. It's been hard to find people to contract to because in reality, the, the bar to contribute and to spend our money on somebody is quite high. Like to, to be able to get into that space, you need to show that you're able to do that. And so that barrier is already very difficult to overcome. And so finding people that are willing to do that and actually will stick with it is incredibly challenging. So in reality, I mean, besides the people that are being paid to do it for work, there isn't much people really being paid to do stuff like that, which is you know, unfortunate. And another thing for me, at least, is like I haven't even set up GitHub sponsors for myself. And another aspect of open source that's quite challenging is, is the guilt involved with it, right? Like I have the push rights to Tonic. I, have, I can publish things and people will open up bugs that are maybe it's blocking them from achieving something. And... I don't have the time nor energy to always help them out because sometimes it requires a lot of work. The quality bar of contributors is all over the place. So you, sometimes you have to guide through users. Sometimes users drop a 2009 PR on you and you're like, hey, can you review this? I'm like, absolutely not. Like, that's a lot. So like one thing I've had to learn is how to say no. <laughs> like I've gotten very good at it now, but you know, things like, hey, like this is a lot. I don't have the time for this, but I feel guilty. So I actually don't accept money because I, if I felt like I accepted money, I would feel even worse. I would feel like I would need to actually spend more time, more of my free time, more of my mental energy on it that I currently necessarily don't want to spend on. Like, you know, I've come to the point in my life where like I want to set a certain amount of time a week to work on coding and there's other priorities in life. So, you know, back when I, when I was younger, I was able to like, you know, come home from work and code all night, but now I, I don't have that same interest or motivation. And so I kind of have to have this boundary I put between, you know, the people there a little bit because I don't want to, you know, feel guilty and bad. I can say now, like, you're not paying me. There's no, like, yes, if you want to get a release out, you do a lot of the heavy lifting and work, I will help get it through. But, you know, if you're asking me to do something, I'm going to tell you, like, look, like, I, I just purely don't have time. And actually, this happened literally today. Someone came in and was like, hey, is there any plans to, to implement this? I'm like, no, I, I, I currently don't have the, the time nor energy to do this. If you're interested in fixing it, like, come on, be a maintainer, come talk to me. And in fact, I've been looking for maintainers for a very long time. And I've had some people come in, work on stuff. I've had one maintainer come in, but it turned out that actually pushing him to work on a different project, kind of similar to what I did with Tonic. I had him work on a HTTP library, like a Django style library that allows you to, not, it's not HTTP, but like a HTTP server, kind of like express style library for Rust that we were really lacking. And I saw this really good opportunity for us. And so I was like, hey, like, I know you're helping me a lot and you're, I love having you help me and you're awesome. And I trust you, like I, I, you have full rights to everything, but like, actually I think you're better used doing this, like championing this and, and running with it. He did that. And now the project, which is Axum, is a wildly, even more popular than Tonic. And I'm, it, I'm, I'm happy with that. But the downside is that I lost a, a collaborator because he doesn't have the time to spend time on both, right? So, you know, it's like, like I found somebody, but then the opportunity presented itself and I, I lost them. 
And in fact, I pushed them. I created the repo and I was like, hey, go talk to Carl, go, go implement this. Like, yes, go, 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 go. So it wasn't like a, I was sad, sad. Like I'm so happy with the outcome. But since then I've not been able to find anyone to really stick with it and, you know, help me. So it's still been just me, you know, maintaining these things and it's, it's a lot of work. Lucio, you mentioned earlier, you know, there was some mental health aspect to open source that you feel like is fairly pervasive, it sounded like. Tell us what that is. Yeah, so I mean, like, when you create an open source project, you know, let's say like for me with Tonic, I, I started writing it because one, as I said earlier, like, you know, I was like thinking of a job in distributed databases and stuff, but also I was just genuinely curious. Like I was enjoying it. I was having fun writing the library, figuring these things out, you know, looking at other libraries and seeing how they did stuff and trying to massage it into Rust and make it right. You know, writing blog posts and making them, you know, spending time on the readme and making it look all pretty. Like, I love that. The first pass I did that was amazing. But as the years went on and Tonic kind of grew and matured and more and more people started using it. So the frequency of issues being opened or people asking me questions on Discord started to increase. The burden started to, you know, become quite hard. Like, I'm one person. I have a, a fixed amount of energy every week. And the, this thing is piling up on top of me. And there's more people asking me stuff. And the, and obviously, as a project gets more complicated and the longer it exists, the harder it is maintaining it. Like there's this relationship, right? Where as you add more code, the burden of maintaining it, remember the, the implicit dependencies of everything becomes very complicated. So, you know, the problems and the bugs to solve started to get much more complicated in a good and bad way. But, you know, like it's the nature of software. But when you work at a company maintaining a piece of software, there's motivation. You have customers that are paying you and telling you, Hey, we love this. This is great. Like, you know, you have, you would like, for example, let's say a B2B company, maybe you have a customer success team and they're giving you feedback from the customers. They're saying, hey, our customers like really enjoyed this feature. Good job. In the open source, what happens when I make a release, right? I spend all, I spend all my energy and brain power, like cutting a release, writing the code, making sure everything's right, doing the change log, make sure everyone's happy. You know, I click the button to publish and then radio silence. If it's good, if, if the release has no bugs, right? Radio silence. There's nothing. Did people download it? Did people try it? Yeah, you're, you're kind of saying that most feedback is right. All you feedback. hear is this negative feedback. You don't get the positive feedback loops that you know trigger the dopamine release in your brain that make you excited and motivated, like you would have at a company, like your boss saying, "Good job," you know, like that was really the you know you make these releases, these bug fixes, you spend all this energy fixing these bugs, and then it works. So no one tells you good job, right? It's like it's quite a depressing experience and all you hear is right there's these negative things and then on top of that because you are the maintainer you are the only person to be able to review and push things through and now uh, someone opens a pr fixing a bug that a couple of other people have and then they comment on the pr saying hey is someone going to review this and i'm like look like i am exhausted i don't have the time for this like maybe next week i can look at this but i feel bad like inherently like i want to help these people I, I have an internal want to be helpful and so it really pains me to have to like leave these people hanging and it gets worse, you know, we have some projects that issues are piled up like crazy. And there's, there's surf, the surface area is large that they need to, to work on. So there's a lot of stuff going on and the overhead is really high. And you pair that with not being paid a, say, a wage. I mean, the work that a lot of these open source people do is the work of, you know, senior, senior engineers. We did this analysis when I was at AWS, you know, about like the quality of these, these, these the code these people are writing, what they have to think about. And like, if you were to compare them to the leveling at, AWS, for example, it's like you're a senior engineer. If you're able to do this stuff and you're able to like make these choices and you know talk to people in a certain way and do designs, especially in an async, async collaborative world without you know someone being able to help you or another engineer helping you, like that is truly the work of a senior engineer, but these people are being paid zero dollars 
Like it's quite crazy. Like the qual the work they are doing is worth hundreds of thousands of dollars, and they're paying being paid maybe like they get a thousand dollars through sponsors or something. Like it's quite crazy this disparity and that plus the guilt and plus other priorities in life kind of turn you into burnout. They make you kind of fall in this pit, right? Like where you, you just don't know what to do, you're paralyzed. We, we talk about community, we use that word all the time. Like there's a big community around Tonic and maybe, maybe it would help to understand who, who these people are actually. Most of them are users of the library and they're fairly transactional. They show up, they download, they run, and they file bugs when they don't work. And that's, that's like, what, you know, 90% of the, the community? Yeah, I mean, there's maybe two or three people on Discord. We, so we, we tend to use Discord for all of our the Tokyo projects. And so there's a tonic channel that I monitor. And occasionally we have some other people that, we have a tag for some people, like a group where people that are helpful people, they're not like contributors, they don't have push access, but they are just people that have been answering questions here and there. And this is also how I got involved, by the way. I uh, started going on Gitter back in the day and was helping people. And that's, you know, as a, as a, as a maintainer, I'm like, wow, I love that. I love when people come in and answer questions. Like, you know, if you don't know the answer, ping me, like, I'm happy, but like, please go and like try to answer questions. Even if you're not confident, like it's, it's a good start. And that shows initiative, right? So there's people that help out, but there's maybe three or four. It's just for Tonic, right? For Tokyo, there's a larger group of people. Obviously, the surface area is something like Tokyo, the, the actual, so like the Tokyo umbrella and there's the Tokyo project, uh, the actual code library. That surface area is massive. So we have a lot more people, like there's a lot more of a community there because also the user segment that uses Tokyo is everything, whereas Tonic is one slice of that pie. So beyond that, there's not much of maintainers helping people answering questions. It's usually just other people maybe running into a bug and maybe they found a solution. Beyond that, yeah, it's transactional people being like, hey, can I get some help for this? That's it. And you can't just like walk away because you you have the keys to, to making updates. And you know, as you mentioned, somebody's got a critical bug or a security issue, they wanna they wanna push an update and you're you're kind of blocking. Right. So actually the we have the permission set up in Tokyo that if I were to get hit by a bus tomorrow, like a large bus, people have access rights to everything. I'm not leaving like it's part of an organization. Right, right. There right, are escape right, right. patches, but people actively making publishing new packages and stuff is just me mostly. Other people have rights and they know how to do it, but it's they're so like, for example, David who works on Axum, the guy I mentioned earlier, I mean he hasn't made a tonic release in two years, right? So I mean like he's not he's not really like gonna remember how to do all the little things here and there. So yeah, it's it's just me kind of managing it all. I'll bet somewhat poorly probably, but you know, trying my best. What's the end game? Do eventually you hand this off to somebody? Do you just document how to do releases really well? I don't I don't know. Is there what have you seen in other open source projects? Is there like a place? So I think the real end game is waiting for Rust 2.0 to come out. So my library becomes incompatible and someone else has to take the reins of maintaining a library. No, I, there is no end game. And actually I thought the same thing. Like, how do I get out of this? I, I, there's, no, there's no real way to do it. And the hope is that some maintainer comes by that helps out and will be able to take charge. But the real solution actually is to get the library to 1.0 state where it's just bug fixes. What this means for Tonic right now, it's probably like I need to go through with an ax and start chopping off things, right? There's some things that I implemented in 2019 that made a lot of sense, right? With the idea that we're the first library of the market. So I have to do a lot more heavy lifting to make up for the lack of other libraries. So like the, there's a gRPC stuff, but then there's a lot of like load balancing and HTTP server client configuration stuff that I wrote kind of like a layer on top to make it easier. That now it's a lot easier to do it by hand. Like you could, you could put the pieces together but before it was not the case. So, you know, part of the end game is 
cutting surface area. And this is a huge strategy in how to achieve 1.0. Like, you know, really just cut out all the surface area, maybe put it into like an unstable crate that's not 1.0, and then just have like a very solid 1.0. And that's really the, the end goal. The gRPC protocol is not going to change. You know, the HP2 protocol is not going to change. What we have now is pretty solid. I mean, it's very production ready. It's being used quite heavily all over the world. So, you know, I'm pretty confident in the code. It's more of just reducing surface area. But the problem with that is it's a lot of work to go and cut things out because I have to write docs and update things. So it's kind of a catch-22. From your experience at Amazon, what percent of, you know, big tech engineers have a, are an open source maintainer, have a kind of an open source side hustle that relies on them? So from my perspective at Amazon, it's a very low percentage. Very, very low percentage. And it, but I think that's a problem with a company like Amazon or Microsoft or Google in essence a little bit, but I think the Google personality doesn't kind of varies from those two. Someone like at Amazon has, especially like a lot of Amazon has a very strong college pipeline. So you have a lot of people coming straight from college, going into, you know, a pretty good cushy tech job, working in some pretty bespoke technology, right? Like the build system is unique. The libraries they're using are unique. I mean, this is a big shift. Russ made a big shift at Amazon because a lot of the previous libraries they use that like they everything's in Java, right? So they already have like handwritten every library you could ever want. You didn't have to go outside the little bubble, everything just worked, right? But for us that's not the case. That's why people started using Tonic because they needed a library to do something now, not we can't wait for a team to implement this in 1.0 it, right? But most people are not writing Rust. Most people are writing Java or whatever at Amazon because it's a very large company. Those people are not really exposed to the outside world. So there's no point for them to do open source stuff. Like a lot of them don't the job is already taxing enough. Like they're, they're not going to really go out of their bubble. I think people at startups and companies where you do have to kind of pull tools off the shelf. You do have to go on GitHub and see what other options there are. Like if I wanted to implement something for Terso, for example, and I didn't do my due diligence to go check for a Rust library that might do it exactly what I want, that's really dumb. Like I, I should be finding the fast way, fastest way possible to achieve something. So that sort of process also leads into people contributing back. You know, like you'll see a lot of startups have GitHub organizations where they're like, hey, we open sourced this little library that we used to do this thing and it really helped us. And that can kind of spark a little bit of that open source creativity, innovation, and putting things out there that a large company doesn't really push. Like, obviously, there's going to be exceptions. There's going to be people that are curious and just want to do stuff. And, you know, like me, I was doing it all on my own, wasn't related to work. Somehow it found its way back into work. But yeah, it's, it, there's a lot of people in this large company that are not really exposed to this type of stuff. And they're not exposed to the risks either. That's the other thing. You know, I spent a lot of time at AWS thinking about, like, what should we depend on? If I could choose a set of libraries that everyone should depend on, how do we make those decisions? And it's, no, most people don't think about that. They just choose. It's good until things break and, you know, you have a zero day or something, but, you know, it's always a risk. Lucio, this has been super fascinating. Not only all the details on Tonic and Rust, but, but kind of your personal experience navigating being an open source maintainer. Tell us, as we wrap up here, what folks can do if they're excited to learn more about Tonic or want to take the load off your shoulders? Well, if you're interested in coming and interested in Tonic at all, like come check out the project, try it out. You know, there's a bunch of GitHub issues. There's Discord. Getting involved is pretty easily. I'm available. You can find me on Discord. You'll see my green name show up. Play around, respond to some issues, review a PR. I, I, I will never stop anyone from providing their opinion on something. And actually, I, I encourage people to act as if they're a maintainer without having the privilege of being a maintainer, right? Like, like go ahead and review something as if you were the one trying to merge the PR. That generates a lot of confidence in us. I love seeing the initiative. And again, I have an email. I have 
Twitter X, I have Discord, reach out to me, come ask me questions. I'm always happy to talk and discuss these sort of things. And as I, I, I was a, a budding open source maintainer once upon a time, not too long ago. So I understand very well what it's like to kind of try to get into this space. Well, also, we appreciate your service, Lucio. You've given something back to the world. That's the least I can do, you know. You can subscribe to the podcast and check out our community Slack and newsletter at contributor.fyi. If you like the show, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, I'm Eric Anderson, and this has been Contributor. Contributor.